Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. So this episode is brought to you by NorthPass Business. Against small businesses and startups, they often work with limited resources and reduce costs wherever possible. While this is sometimes practical, cybersecurity is one area where you don't want to cut corners. Creating strong, unique passwords for your company's accounts is a surefire way to defend your business from data breaches. However, with the number of personal and work logins we use daily, it's very easy to get password fatigue, leading to reusing the same passwords across accounts. So NordPass Business is a powerful password manager for organizations that removes the difficulty of generating and remembering strong passwords for you and your colleagues. Additionally, it allows for you to integrate single sign-on with your company's Google Workspace accounts and effortlessly create groups to share sensitive information across teams and projects. So see NordPass Business in action now with a three-month free trial by going to nordpass.com forward slash Pantera and use the code Pantera. This episode is brought to you by Basecamp. So Basecamp is a project management and team communication application that has been around for about 18 years, and it's used by thousands of companies today. Basecamp is all about simplicity. It is designed to give you and your team the tools you need to get work done. They have message boards, to-dos, file storage, chat calendar, and much more. Basecamp is built to help you in getting out of your way and let you focus on what matters. Again, you know, like when you're adding a bunch of people, there's a bunch of files that need to be shared. You need to be effective. And that's where Basecamp comes in. They actually are from the guys that brought to you 37 signals. And really, they help in making decisions simple and also effective. So go to Basecamp. Their pricing is simple and they give you the all, all really the features in a single plan. No upsells, no upgrades. Go to Basecamp.com forward slash dealmakers and try Basecamp for free. No credit card required and cancel at any time. Thank you, Basecamp, for sponsoring this episode. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a very exciting entrepreneur. I think that we're going to be learning quite a bit, you know, about building and scaling. Uh, and uh, you're all going to find, you know, his story very inspiring. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Shelby Clark. Welcome to the show. Hi. Uh, thanks so much for having me. So let's do a little bit of a walk through memory lane, Shelby. So uh, you were born in Colorado. So how was life growing up? Uh, life was really good. I lived in a, a very unexciting suburban uh, town of Denver, Colorado. I grew up in Aurora, Colorado. Starbucks, Applebee's, as far as the eye can see. Um, not very exciting, but, you know, a really comfortable, great place to grow up. And I mean, obviously, very much uh, entrepreneurial. Uh, I'm wondering if anyone in your family, you know, was running their own stuff or, or did you get that bug later on? Nobody was really running that, but my mom likes to tell a story of, I was like five years old, me and my best friend Thatcher, um, we had a little lemonade stand. And when like our, our sales weren't enough, we like put our lemonade stand in the wagon and took it door to door. <laughs> and none of the people could like resist the five-year-old boys like selling lemonade stands. So we like, our lemonade stand just crushed it. <laughs> That's amazing. Lemonade wagon, I guess it was. So. Well, I guess, I guess, you know, you, you also studied, uh, biomechanical engineering or, or what, or biomedical engineering. What was that again? Biomedical engineering. Yeah. 
And how and what how do you land, you know, with that type of um degree or what what piqued your curiosity, you know, on studying that? Uh sure. So when I was studying, um my my father unfortunately passed away uh, very suddenly, he had a heart attack. And it was a really very tough um uh, experience for all of us and just like a heartbreak for my father who who passed away so early. And I think that I you know, I got really just intrigued by the idea of technology in the body and if there could be you know, different like health innovations that would help people, um, you know, on a large scale, that was, you know, um, a really worthy endeavor in my, in my perspective. So, you know, I, I picked a really tough major um, to like, I ended up uh, like for a long time doing nothing with it and then circling back around. So for a long time, I was like, why didn't I pick an easier major? But um, I've definitely circled back around to it um, life since ago in, in those circles. And then consulting, you know, obviously consulting, you know, is very helpful, you know, when it comes to um, resolving problems, you know, as they say, the, um, The consulting, you know, like it's it's all about like tackling big problems, breaking them into small problems and then tackling, you know, one after the other. So I guess what what do you think you really got from from that experience as a in management consulting? Yes, yeah, so my, my first job out of college was in management consulting. And um I think that I always thought that I would end up at the business the intersection of business and biotech. And so uh I had a technical degree, I thought that going into business might be a good place. And you know, I think that I learned how to solve big problems with data. Um it was, you know, uh You sort of got thrown into the deep end in all these different like strange uh, situations and industries. You know, I got to be like a really great expert on the upstream oil exploration process. Um, I, I could tell you all about like manufacturing T-shirts, uh, you know, airline maintenance, all these things. Um, so you get to to learn how to uh, really orient yourself in a totally unfamiliar place very quickly. Yeah, and then like I said, how to solve big problems with data, um, which I think has proved to be you know a really valuable skill. So then what what got you into into Kiva? You know, why did you, you know, leave the consulting side of it and how do you land in Kiva? Management consulting is not a very pleasant experience. Um there's lots of things that I didn't like. Um you know, the life like the travel is really tough, the hours are long, it's really demanding and it doesn't you don't get like a warm feeling like you're making the world a better place. Um my first job was at uh we did consulting for an airline maintenance uh, like a big airline. And um, our recommendations led to a thousand people being laid off. Um, that was really tough. Um, you know, frankly, like, none of the airlines in those uh, eras were doing well at all. And so it was something where like you sort of needed to chop off the arm and save the body. But it, it certainly wasn't a like, you know, make you feel good sort of thing. And so burnout is really high in management consulting. And so one thing that my firm did was they had a nonprofit um, sabbatical program. So after about two years, I reached my limit of like management consulting. And I took uh, about six months and volunteered for a really early stage nonprofit um, called Kiva.org. Kiva, it's a peer-to-peer microfinance lending platform. So like it connects people around the world for microloans that create that provide financial services to people who don't have access to them. So this was like 2006 when I got involved and Kiva, um, Kiva was just quite a rocket ship at the time. It sort of was a, a rare nonprofit to sort of a follow a growth trajectory of like a, you know, um, a, like a, at the time, like Web 2.0 company. And it was just, it was super inspiring. I felt super passionate about the work that we were doing. And, you know, here I sort of learned, um, and I, none of us knew anything about microfinance. Um, you know, I think that we, this is where I sort of learned, like, what happens when you lock a bunch of people in a room um, with, uh, with, that have a, a bunch of passion for something. And I also learned how big of an impact that consumer internet can have. You know, if you can sort of tackle the social issues with um, sort of a, a model that scales, the impact can be incredible. Now, now in your case, you know, you go to uh, Harvard uh, Business School. Uh, and I guess my question here, you know, comes like, 
what triggered that? Like, why did you decide it was the right time to go into business school at that point? So this, this experience at Kiva was just very inspiring. I was just very ins- inspired to try to start a company, but I didn't really, I didn't have any time or ideas or money or partners or, you know, as I was thinking about like, what do I do next? Um, I was realizing like, uh, okay, I'm inspired to start something, but I don't really have any of the things that it might take to start a company. So uh, business school would be um, a, a really fertile environment um, to go try to incubate something. And it was, um, I can't say enough good things about how yeah, I, I was, uh, I ended up going to Harvard business school. Um, and just the, everything about it was, was fantastic. Um, the classmates were, were incredible. I, I guess you only learn so much in an MBA. It's a lot more about like the connections and, and the space, but you know, I think that a lot of doors were open to me and it definitely made uh, my entrepreneurial journey much easier. Now for you, obviously, you know, like you had the idea of, of a massive company that, that now, you know, it's, it's incredible. I mean, I mean, I'm even a customer of this company too. But Toro, the idea of Toro. So, so tell us about you know. Obviously, you incubated you know this idea uh, during your time at uh, Harvard. But how did the idea come to you, and and what were the steps that you took in order to bring it to life? Sure. So, as I mentioned, I went to HBS with a really strong focus on entrepreneurship. I really wanted to start uh, start something, but didn't know what it was. And I was a big Zipcar fan at the time. So, Zipcar is a car sharing service. Um, it's an alternative to car. They, they, sort of advertise himself as an alternative car ownership that you can access a vehicle on short notice instead of needing to own one. And I found it to be pretty true that, you know, I was able to access mobility whenever I needed it. My problem was that if I didn't reserve a car far in advance, that everything near me was booked. And so on Thanksgiving day, 2008, I reserved the closest car to me and it was um, two and a half miles away. And for anyone who's spent any time in Boston, um, you'll know some of these awful winter days where it's like sleeting upwards at you. You know, it's like the elements are attacking from every direction. And so I like hop on my bike and I'm like trudging through the sleet and the snow to get to this car. And I'm surrounded, like I'm just noticing like thousands of cars that are lining the streets, many of which covered in snow, look like they haven't been driven in weeks. And are like just trudging along the way and be like, why do I have to go so far to get to this car? Why can't I get in that car? Why can't I get in that car? And so, you know, I sort of like, I took these two things that I love, like my background at Kiva, the idea of connecting people online um, and Zipcar and the, the ability to like access vehicles in your neighborhood. And it just like instantly, I saw them coming together. It was just like, it was obvious instantly. And, and I was like, okay, wait a minute. Like there, this either exists or there's a reason why. Um, and so like any good entrepreneur, I, I go home and the first thing to do is start reserving domain names. I have all these awful domain names like yourcarismycar.com and Communal Wheels was the best one of the day. Like the company was called Communal Wheels for a good six months. And I started looking into it. Like why, like, is this, you know, is anyone doing this? No, was the answer. And the reason why was insurance. Um, nobody could, could figure out how to insure it. Um, there are all these like insurance is a, you know, uh, inherently risk adverse industry. They don't want to try new things. And so, Finding an insurance company that would that would um, sort of create a new insurance product for us um, was like the difficult thing, and we were the first people to figure it out. Um, and so we became the first peer-to-peer car sharing uh, company to launch um, in 2010. And uh, for the people to that are listening to really get it, what ended up being the business model of uh, Turo? How does the company make money? Yeah, so you can think of us sort of like Airbnb for cars. So car owners are able to enroll their car; they make a listing for their car. Um, they specify, you know, when the car is available, and then um, their car gets listed. And then, if you're if you're looking for a vehicle, you can search for a new area. You can search in airports wherever you're traveling. 
and see, you know, you know, hundreds of thousands of cars located, you know, in many countries all over the world and really cool cars. You know, it's not just sort of like what you'll find at just a regular car company um, where it's like, you know, a standard Kia or something with like manual windows. Like these are cool cars. Like they're, you know, a lot of like fun cars with personality. Sometimes whenever there were CDs, remember CDs, like there was like an interesting CD collection in them. Like, you know, and the, the, the car owner meets you and they, they, they show you around their car and they tell you about it. Um, if you're traveling, they'll often drop it off for you at the airport. Uh, so just way easier than hopping in, you know, on the, the bus to go to the rental car place. And so, yeah, I mean, uh, I'm really excited about it because, um, you know, we're taking the majority of revenue you'd, that you'd spend to rent a car and that goes directly to somebody in your community and um, you know, being able to access. So uh, the majority of your business is actually um, in cities. So uh, a large portion is at the airports. Um, but a lot of it is also within cities as well. And so what studies have shown is that as people have access to mobility in their neighborhoods, they're less likely to own a car. And they're, um, uh, and that means they drive a lot less, about 40% less. So um, interestingly, providing access to vehicles leads to less driving and is a great thing for the environment. So um, and, you know, all while um, you know, revitalizing um, you know, income in neighborhoods and um, you know, really providing, at this point, like, great jobs and businesses for, for many entrepreneurs around the world. And what were the early days like of uh, Tour? Like at what point, you know, also do you realize that uh, you guys have turned a corner because building a company like this is not easy. You know, it's a marketplace. You got the supply, demand, the chicken and the egg problem. So at what point do you start to see that you guys have turned the corner? It took a while. You know, this wasn't sort of like an overnight hockey stick. This was like a long slog and it wasn't easy. You know, I mean, I think that there was one of the biggest turning points for us was um, a decision to launch the marketplace nationwide. Um, so we started off going on like sort of a, a market by market and even sort of like a hyper local basis where we were really focused on like advertising and building supply and demand, you know, at a really local scale. This is how Zipcar worked. And this is sort of like the model that we were looking at. So Zipcar, they need to maintain high utilization rates in their vehicles. And so they sort of rolled them out in small pods and it worked, it, that worked okay. But Whenever you have like the challenges of marketplace in terms of like what you were saying, the chicken and egg of building both the supply and the demand, it was just it was just difficult because if you don't have the sort of the critical mass, it's difficult to bring on the supply and and sort of matching it up takes a while. So we ended up hiring a CEO, um, a guy named Andre Haddad. Um, he was also an entrepreneur. His company was acquired by uh, eBay, and then he became an executive at eBay for uh, about a decade. So Andre had um, you know a lot of experience as a leader and particularly experience building marketplaces. And what he knew is that you empower a marketplace and you get out of the way. So like all the things that we were doing to, to try to make it easier was actually just, was just tripping it up. We also installed a technology in every car um, so that you could unlock the car with your, with, with your smartphone. So you didn't have to exchange keys. And in order to do that, you have to have local infrastructure. There's sort of like all these things, but I was convinced that like we, we needed this. It had to be really simple and easy. It had to be just as easy as Zipcar. Um, but Airbnb was working and people were exchanging keys at the time. And, and so it was Andre's lead and, and he really pushed us to make this sort of bold move of like, of launching nationwide. At first it like, it didn't go well, you know, like we really didn't have hyperlocal scale and it was sort of this like very slow, um, this very slow process. And during that, we, um, we really struggled to fundraise and the company almost went out of business. Um, and so, you know, our investors really stood behind us. They, they did an inside round for us and, you know, they sort of came to our rescue and, and, you know, fortunately, by the time we came out of it, you know, the business, it just took a while to like sort of build the, the supply and demand. And, you know, we started to see like pockets forming and then the pockets expanded and then they, you know, they joined with other pockets and it, it took a while, 
but you know, today it's a you know very vibrant marketplace all over the United States, and we're, and we're launching in other countries or around the world. Just launched in um, uh, in Australia. The yeah, I mean, one of the lessons was um, you know empower marketplace and get out of the way. And also, I mean, the company right now, I mean, I believe it has raised like over half a billion. So uh, you know, that's pretty incredible. Now, in your case, you know, how were the early the early races like? I was a good fundraiser, you know, I think the, uh, I like very enthusiastic in a person who like was, you know, not ex afraid to like jump up on the table and, you know, shout how we're going to change the world. So I don't know. I think that, like the first couple of rounds, um, they, they actually like went pretty well. Actually, let me, the, the first round, the seed round, that was, that was a challenging one. I think that, um, first of all, I was still in Boston and at the time Boston, like just really hadn't figured out consumer internet. And so you know, the, the, the investors would just sort of look at me like, you want a stranger to drive my Range Rover? I don't, I don't let my wife drive my Range Rover. <laughs> and, um, but that was an actual comment. Um, and uh, what was really interesting was what we did was, um, you know, I had all these surveys, how people ran out of their car and like nobody cared about my surveys. And so what we did was we launched a website and um, went out to the street corner. I printed out like 10,000 postcards and had like lots of conversations with people. And sort of at the end of this process, I had um, 40 people who had signed up their cars to to rent them out. And so this was sort of enough proof for uh, for investors to say, it went went from this abstract thing to being like, we don't care about your survey, no one's going to do this, to being like, here's 40 people who are waiting to do this. And they were like, how much money do you need? Let's go. And so, you know, I think about entrepreneurship as um, sort of like a series of experiments that reduce risk. And, and so that's what this was. This was saying like, what is the biggest risk facing this idea? It's that people won't, won't run out their cars. And so what is the cheapest, easiest, fastest experiment that I could do to directly address that risk? And this worked. Um, and so, yeah, for any other entrepreneur thinking about this, it's like, it's always what a framework that I think about is like, you know, what are the experiments that you can do to reduce risk in, you know, um, in, in the overall like concept or idea that you're working on? So we'll get back to our conversation in a minute. But if you're an entrepreneur or a sales leader, you want to listen to this. Let me tell you about Wingman. Not, no, no, not Tom Cruise. Wingman is a conversation intelligence tool that helps folks like you coach and scale up their sales teams really fast, really easy. Now, I know you know scaling is not just about hiring. Getting the team up to speed can be the real speed bump. Well, Wingman can help you in getting that. It lets you build call libraries with game tapes relevant to every cell situation, complete with highlights and notes. And it's asynchronous. I mean, repeatable sales training engine. Not just that, Wingman even helps during sales calls with contextual battle cards and monologue alerts. The great thing about Wingman is that it plays nice with all your existing tools like Salesforce, HubSpot, Zoom, Teams, and Google. It even syncs up with Slack so you don't have to log into your CRM all the time for deal updates. So head over to trywingman.com to give it a try. That is T-R-Y-W-I-N-G-M-A-N.com. It's just the wingman yourselves needs to really predictably beat revenue targets quarter after quarter. This episode is brought to you by Partner Hero, which provides customer service outsourcing that's built for the needs of scaling and high-growth startups. They offer flexible terms, fast onboarding, and the ability to scale teams quickly. Perfect for fast-growing businesses. I mean, let's face it, you know, you're all startups. You know, it's time for you to really 
Stop trying to do absolutely everything. You need to get yourself out of the supporting box so you can actually focus on growing your business. So again, Partner Hero is flexible. They have quality assurance. They have offices around the world to really provide that help and support that you need. And if you're ready to bring in outside customer support help for your startup that feels like it's part of your existing team, then check out Partner Hero. Head over to partnerhero.com forward slash dealmakers to book a free consultation with their solutions team and mention that you heard about Partner Hero from dealmakers and they'll waive the setup fee. Now, in your case, you know, after a few years, you know, you decide it's uh, time to turn page. So how was that moment where you decide, you know, to leave as CEO of, uh, of Turo? How and when did that happen? Yeah, I mean, honestly, it was really challenging. And, you know, I like talking about this now because it was so challenging. I think that like one of the things that was happening was I was having a trouble building my team. And my, I think my, my investors got really nervous and they heavily encouraged me to step down. It was pretty aggressive, to be honest. Um, and at the time, it was really scary. Um, I was really upset. Um, I felt like personally attacked. And, um, you know, I think that we all could have handled it better. I think that the investors could have had a more um, of like a dialogue around what's going on and, and, and why. And I think that like, I could have taken a deep look at like what I was good at and what I wanted to do. And like, frankly, I wasn't a great CEO. Uh, you know, I had a lot to learn. And um, I had a very difficult time prioritizing things. Um, I tried to like just do everything. And, you know, I uh, eventually was able to learn a lot whenever we brought in Andre as a CEO. Um, and, you know, I, I ended up overlapping with Andre for about a year. And then, you know, it can be difficult to, um, you know, to be in a company when you're no longer the decision maker, a company that you started. And so I ended up, I ended up leaving on pretty good terms. Um, and, you know, what I'll, what I'll say is like, I mean, things went well with Andre and, you know, the, the company has done phenomenally well. Um, you know, I cannot be upset at all about any of the things that have transpired. And, you know, frankly, they've allowed me to go on and pursue other things and passions. And I'm so thrilled about where I'm at. And, you know, the company is in a fantastic shape. And so, you know, I mean, I think that like, I guess what I would consider entrepreneurs is, you know, I encourage them to consider is like, you know, taking a deep look at like, at how they're doing. And, you know, what the right trajectory is both for them and the, the company. And, you know, it, not everybody is a great CEO and it's a different profile. It's a different job. It's a different skill set. It's a different, like, um, you know, level of stress to be the CEO of a growing company compared to the founder of an early stage company. And, you know, I think I was a really good founder and, um, you know, at the time it wasn't a great person to scale a company and we found somebody that was, you know, um, I, I, it's I'm curious at like how that would change now as I've, I've grown a lot as you know a person and an entrepreneur I was able to learn a lot from Andre both the time that we overlapped as well as the time I was on the board and had a front row seat to the way that the company grew and evolved and you know I think that like for for everybody for investors for entrepreneurs um, you know having just a really clear and open dialogue about what the company needs and and where um, you know people are going to be the best in contributing um, without being you know too concerned about, you know, what that means for, you know, for your ego. It's, you know, it just, it's led to great places for me. And, um, I didn't think it would. So after, after the experience with Turo, um, you turned page and then you started peers. What was peers about? Yeah. So peers was a sort of a benefits aimed to be a benefits platform for independent workers. So Turo became a big part of what 
became called no, uh, the sharing economy. So, so as we were coming out of the you know 2008 economic crash and people started sharing things and everybody loved it. Like were, the sharing economy was like a boom. It was a thing. Um, the media loved it. We got wrapped up in this whole thing. And at first it was all positive stories. And, and then you know, Uber and Lyft hit the scene and it was like, wait a minute, are people sharing things or are these just crappy jobs with no benefits? And you know, I, I, I saw what they were saying and I also like really loved how people were able to like earn a lot of money. Like this was creating a lot of opportunity for people to work on their own terms. And so, you know, I was like, wait a minute, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Like the, this is a good thing that we are, people are able to become entrepreneurs are able to earn income on their own terms. Um, and if the issue is like, you know, benefits and a safety net, why don't we address that instead of like, you know, trying to shut down the sharing economy. And so, um, that's what we did. So we, we tried, um, at the time, you know, there was a big movement um, known as portable benefits. And so this was sort of a, you know, at, at its grandest, it was really rethinking the social safety net for independent workers. Um, you know, uh, about half of American workers are, do not have a normal sort of 40 hour a week job with benefits. And so, you know, um, the, the social safety net that was, de- that was designed to support Americans just doesn't exist anymore. And we can see the impact of that all over the country through homelessness, through poverty. And whenever there's not sort of a safety net, like it gets rough out there, you know, uh, people get desperate. It, it like, it can be, it can just, it can make things really, really difficult. I now live in Costa Rica um, and Costa Rica has uh, universal healthcare. Um, and just even that, like where everybody knows that like, if they get sick, that they will be taken care of. Um, it sort of just changes the way that, that people act and that they approach difficult times. And one question here that I want to ask you is, you know, as the saying goes, you either succeed or you learn. You know, obviously the outcome of peers was not the the type of company that you built, you know, with Turo. So in this case for you, you know, when things turned south, you know, what happened really personally for you? So company ended up failing. You know, this, like, we couldn't get uh, the sharing economy companies to pay for benefits for their workers. Um, if they did that, they made them look more like employees, which is the whole thing they were trying to avoid. And we had all sorts of reasons. Anyways, it didn't work. And so the company failed and I was, I really found myself in a tough spot. You know, I had really sort of like built this like persona as an entrepreneur. It's like what I did, like what, you know, uh, why I was interesting was that I was like you know, doing hip things and like starting companies. And it's like the way that I, that I knew myself, the way that I felt good about myself was that like I was creating these exciting things in the world. And so who was I without those? And it just led me on this long rabbit hole about like, okay, well, do I need to start another company? And, you know, at this point, Turo is actually doing really well. And it was like, okay, if I start another company, does it have to be more successful than Turo? Like, how likely is it getting more successful than Turo? Um, is it about impact? Okay, well, like, what's the impact that I want to create? Like, when is it big enough? And, you know, it was like, I, I think that I was like, I was really chasing uh, sort of validation and success. I think this is really a lot of like what our society teaches us to do, like more, bigger, better. And that's, that's really sort of like the, where, where my mind is taking me. And so like in this depression, uh, sort of on a whim, I decided to do a yoga teacher training. And so I called my sister and I said, let's go to Bali and do yoga teacher training. And she was like, but I don't want to be a yoga teacher. And I was like, I don't either. I'll just go to Bali. Come on. <laughs> and um, so we did. We went to Bali and did a yoga teacher training. And it just blew us both away. I think that like I was, I was expecting to like learn, you know, a bunch of yoga poses and I like found spirituality. You know, I think that for me, it sort of like turned the camera around. Like, I think that I was looking, I was like constantly seeking outside for like all the things that were going to, you know, make me whole or, or provide the validation that I wanted or needed. And, and it sort of like turns things around to a more introspective look. 
and that you know um and all of the other practices um that i was learning like aside from yoga like meditation breath work movement dance philosophy um these things just lit me up and i felt like you know totally alive super present really excited about about life like in the moment less like sort of worrying about what i was if i was doing was good enough or going to change the world and at the end of that uh at the, at the end of that experience which already was was proving to be very you know very impactful i did my first soul cyber journey um so I had done mushrooms many times, socially, recreationally, like giggling at Burning Man or you know running around music festival. And this was the first time we were, that I did them on a really intentional basis. Um, sort of sat and meditated until really until like the world around me dissolved. And at first, it's a very scary thing for like the the world to dissolve around you. Um, and in that dissolving, um, I felt connected to everything. I felt inextricably tied to nature. I felt connected to the people in my lives. I felt incredibly loved and supported, um, both from people uh, externally as well as for myself. Uh, it was this like this internally sourced sense of like satisfaction and validation that I wasn't finding anywhere else, and it just blew me away. It and and like in this this like complete like connection, love, joy. I mean, I've just it was definitely one of the most beautiful experiences of my life. And you know, I think it's like it's tough to feel alone when you feel connected to everything. And how how do you how do you land? You know, also in Costa Rica because obviously you continued in in that journey now and 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 obviously you know what you're doing too you know with your with 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 now on the investment side you know is very much you know attached to 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 that breakthrough that you experienced absolutely yeah so i mean you know my personal experience with with this psychedelic journey and let me just look what was going on you know like am i just like a crazy hippie like doing drugs in the jungle <laughs> or wait a minute there's a whole movement happening here and um you know i came back to realize that mdma was knocking the door and being approved as uh, a treatment for PTSD. Um, and there's a whole line of medicines behind them that were uh, you know, proving to be some of the most uh, powerful uh, medicines that we have um, in mental health and wellness. And so um, I've really sort of shifted my entire career to, um, you know, to support the, the development of, um, of these, uh, these therapies and, and mental health and wellness more broadly. So, so yeah, I mean, the, in and, and a couple of different ways, I mean, I, uh, as you mentioned, I, I, and as I think I mentioned, I moved to Costa Rica where, uh, you know, um, plant medicine, um, ceremonies and journeys have been, um, been happening for a very long time and opened a, um, a psychedelic retreat center and community, um, that's focused on the LGBT community, um, called the jungle neighborhood, um, come play in the jungle with us. It's really, um, it's a beautiful experience. And, and we're really focusing on, um, you know, sort of uh, overall wellness, um, specifically for the LGBT community. And then I'm also a partner at a small investment fund called Lionheart Ventures, and we focus on um, mental health and wellness. And so I'm investing in really cool companies um, across the spectrum, including um, consumer mental health applications. Just invested in a company called Outro, and um, it's the opposite of Intro. And it's a coaching app to help people get off of antidepressants. Um, it's a very difficult thing. Antidepressants are physically addictive. And um, most people don't, even most doctors really don't know the best way to get off of them. Um, and then we're also investing in um, psychedelic therapies. So um, there's uh, uh, many psychedelic therapies that are coming through the FDA uh, pipeline, um, starting with a number of class classic psychedelics like um, MDMA, psilocybin. Um, and then there's a whole uh, sort of second generation of psychedelics where you know, different aspects of the psych psychedelic journey are being uh, modified or improved or altered to better address specific indications. So for example, um, if you can slightly mo mo modify a molecule and you can have it 
um, be more psychedelic or less psychedelic. You can have it last longer or last shorter or be shorter. You can completely um, engineer out the psychedelic uh, aspects. It, you can, you know, dial up or down res- uh, uh, specificity for specific receptors, and that can help to, you know, address um, specific conditions or uh, side effects. So um, there's a ton that's happening out there, and you know, uh, I'll stop short of saying that I think that psychedelics can be a panacea, um, but I think that they can be an incredibly important medicine that both uh, addresses, um, you know, specific and very difficult to deal with uh, mental health conditions. And, um, you know, at the most grand, I think that it could really shift, it could bring, you know, a broad shift in consciousness, you know, that helps us remember, um, you know, our connection to the natural world and to each other. Those realizations are going to be um, the root of how some of the most important changes in the world will be made. And obviously, you know, definitely a lot going on, a lot of momentum. You know, you're obviously now in Costa Rica, you organize their retreats too. I guess for the founders that are in the psychedelic space and I guess for anyone that is listening now that would like to, you know, reach out and say hi, what would be the best way to do so, Shelby? You can find me on Instagram, Shelby Clark Flow. It's probably the best way to find me. So, yeah, we'd love to hear from you. Um, you can uh, see all the things that we're doing. Um, this is uh, right now I'm in one of our cabins in Costa Rica. We've built this sort of like bamboo wonderland down here, these really cool bamboo tree houses. And um, yeah, so we've got uh, really interesting retreats, um, you know, lots of events. Um, between retreats, we're, we're operating as a um, boutique hotel. Again, we're focused on the LGBT community. Um, right next door, we have a sister retreat center called Holos. That's holos.global. Um, it's a, a very similar psychedelic retreat center and community. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're uh, welcoming to all people. Um, and, you know, Holos is another great option as well. So. Amazing. Well, hey, Shelby, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thanks for having me. Nice chatting. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.